0: Has anybody heard from Deepu? Do you know if he's coming?
1: I have not heard anything. Let me text him. So Deepu is coming on. Yeah, he's coming on. He's probably fixing his tie right now. Mm
2: -hmm. I can hear the trash talk. (laughs) (laughs) All right, no tie.
1: (laughs) You just took it off just for that, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs)
2: <laughs> it's a clip-on, so it was easy. on. Just- <laughs> <laughs> now you know. Strangely, I didn't know how to tie a tie till uh, 2013. I learned it during uh, internship.
1: <laughs> wow. Okay.
2: Hello. I uh, watched a YouTube video. That's how I I worked on my skill there.
0: What can't you learn on YouTube? That needs to be an icebreaker question. Tell <laughs> us something that you've learned from YouTube. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I am Dr. Grace Pratt. I am the Behavioral Medicine Faculty at Great Plains Family Medicine in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and I am joined by our podcast team. I'm going to let them introduce themselves, but as they do, as we like to do, I'm going to start us with an icebreaker question. And the question is, what is one thing that you own that you probably should throw away but you also probably never will.
3: Uh, so let's hear from you guys how you're doing this morning. Bridget? I'm Bridget Beachy, a clinical psychologist out in Yakima, Washington. And yeah, as far as an item that, or items that I should probably throw out, but probably never will, is my high school and college sports t-shirts and hoodies. I should have them made into a blanket and I might do that at some point, or at least with the t-shirts. I'm not sure if they do that for hoodies. So I just have them stashed in this closet just too much nostalgic energy associated with them to part. That's a good one. Uh, Deepu.
2: Good morning or good afternoon or wherever you are. My name is Deepu George and I'm coming from the Rio Grande Valley. The item that I have, I, I have these random notebooks from India that I've carried with me over 10 years in the, in the U.S., there's really nothing relevant in them. And uh, I could throw them away, but it's still on my shelf. So I have those things that I hold on to.
0: Both of you, these attachments that we have, right? To a little bit of a piece of our past or something that was meaningful to us at one time. Uh, Christine? I am Dr. Christine Borst, adjunct professor and
4: entrepreneur. So I I tend to get rid of stuff pretty easily. But a really weird thing that I keep is the positive pregnancy tests that I've had for either kids or miscarriages or whatever. And it's disgusting probably, but I have them in like little memory boxes. So, Neftali, if you could see his face, he's like, oh.
1: Yeah, that was a little bit of a shocker there. I know. Hey, wake
4: up, everybody. There's a, you know, and I feel like especially with, with a miscarriage too, when you have literally nothing else to like show for that, it's like, okay, you, you did exist a little bit um, for what it's worth. They're the dropper kind, not the ones you pee directly on. So I feel like that's a little bit better, a
0: little more hygienic
4: in plastic bags.
0: <laughs> Again, those sentimental attachments, that's really a special
4: memory. I
1: don't think there's a way to segue from from that (laughs) one. Good luck. Good luck.
0: (laughs) Okay, (laughs) let's 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 just move on then. (laughs) Neftali.
1: Hello, hello everybody. Uh, My name is Neftali Serrano, Neftali Serrano, whichever way you're able to say it. I'm the CEO here at the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. Happy to be back with the team after not being uh, here last month with the conference. And I'm in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. As far as things throwing things out, um, I honestly like I I'm with Christine on the uh, not on the saving uh, those sorts of uh, biological items, but um, I I throw things out pretty pretty easily. In fact, I find it very I I purge things regularly. Just to just feels better to clean stuff up. Um, However, I'll I'll go deep on you guys here and say, there's lots of expectations that I carry with me and on me that I'd love to get rid of (laughs) (laughs) and I'm working on. So that, that I'd really, I'd love to get rid of a bunch of those silly expectations.
0: That's a nice twist on this question. (laughs) Um, I have a maternity sweatshirt that is so comfortable and it is stretched out I had triplets so I was really big and this fit me when I was about to have my triplets and it, it's so comfortable though I mean my family's complete my tubes are tied I'm not having any more kids but I cannot get myself to get rid of this maternity sweatshirt I think it's probably gonna have a permanent place in my closet
1: yeah those are the kind of items that I, I will when my wife puts something she has like stuff like that and I just shake my head I'm like wow
0: you know, we have what we have. I, I think the problem with that question, and granted, I'm the one that posed the question, but the problem with the question is the should, you know, who who's to say what we should be doing or what we should be keeping or throwing out. That's just on us to decide. side. Uh, well, it's good to see all of your faces this morning. I'm glad that you're here. I'm going to move us into a new segment that we're having called Inside CFHA. So Naftali, could you tell us some about that?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, we just thought, you know, a lot of times people don't know like what's happening they, until it happens um, when they see things, an event pop up, or what, what are we thinking of? What are we doing? And so, uh, Marta Salcedo and I um, are going to be checking in regularly and letting you guys know what's happening behind the scenes. So, without further ado, here's Inside CFHA. Hey, everybody. My name is Neftali Serrano. I am the chief executive officer here at the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. And this is Inside CFHA, a brief segment here on our podcast uh, letting you know what's going on behind the scenes here at the virtual headquarters for the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. So I'm here with my partner in crime, Marta Saucedo. Marta, say hello everybody.
5: Hi, everyone. Uh, Marta here, uh, the project manager for Technical Assistance and Strategic Development, and it's a pleasure to talk to you all about uh, the good news that it's happening uh, in CFHA, and that we're happy to share with all of you.
1: Yeah, so why don't you get us going, Marta? What What are some of the things that we're working on here, uh, staff?
5: Sure, so you know, after the conference, we kind of uploaded all the uh, sessions in our learning platform, our CFHA share and learns. However, right now we continue to upload really valuable materials that we have been receiving from some of our members. And uh, now you can actually um, find 10 modules from uh, Change That Matters that were shared by Stephanie, uh, Michelle and Andrew from the University of Minnesota. And they're very cool uh, modules because you will find um, templates uh, of documentation, you will find a deductive lecture and also handouts in Spanish and in English of uh, topics that are very helpful, like uh, sleep, alcohol, uh, medication adherence, and you know some of them. So I'll invite everyone to check them out.
1: Yeah. So many thanks to those folks. Uh, it's Michelle Sherman and Stephanie Hooker were the main investigators, but lots of people uh, contributed to the development of these. They're basically health behavior uh, topic areas. And as a clinician, they're really helpful because you can just you know, download these handouts um, and what they call these implementation toolkit uh, uh, that they have that essentially help you uh, work in these uh, different topic areas. So you can go to our website. Uh, it's called integratedcarelearning.com. That's integratedcarelearning.com. And uh, you can search up, I think, uh, Martha, you said the search terms was health and behavior, right?
5: That's correct. Health and behavior. Then watch you once you kind of, kind of type the health and behavior, you will find the 10 different topics.
1: Yeah, so the alcohol use, chronic pain, mood, healthy eating, medication adherence, physical activity, sleep, smoke cessation, social connection, and stress. So pretty common topics that you'll be addressing as far as health behavior change in primary care. And you have like everything from a lecture uh, PowerPoint that you can download if you're gonna give a lecture on these You got handouts, you got a documentation template, you have even an AVS template, um, and then you have handouts for patients, Spanish and English. So pretty cool set of uh, resources, quick and dirty, pretty easy to get. So again, that's on our CFHA Learns platform, which you can find on integratedcarelearning.com.
5: We also have uh, materials, and this is more like um, for those who are in the uh, education setting to kind of teach about integrated care uh, ma- wonderful material from the society for health psychology in which uh, again you will find it's actually the completely course with the syllabus and the powerpoints of the foundation of the integrated how to start with integrated care but also more individual topics uh, in order to educate uh, people out there um, that are interested in becoming uh, part of an integrated care model. Uh, I, those are also gonna be uh, available very soon. I'm thinking by next week um, in our learning platform. So definitely other materials that you don't wanna miss.
1: Yeah, so these are, these are. Um... Uh, as Martha said, perfect for like a professor, for example, um, and let's say you're, you're charged with teaching a course on integrated care. Um, this course was designed by the folks at the Society for Health Psychology. Um, a large team of individuals uh, get credit for this um, to basically help uh, educators put together a course. Um, in their social work program, in their school of psychology program, in their uh, other master's level or doctoral level uh, uh, programs, I suppose you could potentially um, uh, use these also at the undergrad level, but I'm pretty sure these were designed more for the gradu- graduate school level as well. So um, again, really foundational stuff. Uh, covers lots and lots of topics. Uh, Do you remember how many modules in total there
5: are? I think there are 20, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh, But they're really well made. Uh, You have like short uh, clips of videos. You have like in the bottom uh, what to communicate to the person or the group that you're educating in this uh, and the topics. So it's, it's very complete and easy to follow.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So again, check that out at integratedcarelearning.com.
5: And with that, I wanna invite all the members who they feel they have materials uh, to submit to us to do that. Um, there's a link where you can do that and or you can reach out to me and I can share that. But also we're starting uh, to create our review committee because it's important that we uh, make sure that the materials that we're receiving uh, are in a good level to be part of our learning platform and we love to hear uh, from members about what they like or not and so we're creating this volunteer review committee so if you are interested uh, also reach out to me i will give you the link so you can uh, submit all your information it's we were thinking about like five hours or six hours of commitment throughout the year right yeah telly
1: yeah, it's not a huge commitment um, and and we'll make it pretty easy for folks just like we do for reviewing conference materials. So it's a, if you've done review for conferences, um, it's a very similar process. Um, and it's totally remote, so there's not really lots of meetings or anything you have to attend. You just have to be willing to rate materials that come our way, rank them. Um, we like to make sure that our materials are evidence based and um, and that they are well grounded in uh, standards of practice in the community. So you're a part of that screening process to help us make sure that anything we put on our learning site uh, meets our our community standards.
5: And there, I know there were other two topics, Natali, that you wanted to share with the members. Uh, do you want to talk about them?
1: Sure. Yeah. So one of the things was just uh, highlighting here uh, some of the. Um, uh, blogs on our Integrated Care News site. So if you go to integratedcarenews.com, you'll uh, see our blogs there and there's some really good uh, topics. So a uh, very energetic key member, uh, Norma Bali Borrero, um, uh, has a, a blog there called Tough Talks When Kiddos Share Suicidal Thoughts and Feelings in Primary Care. Um, So it's a very pertinent uh, blog post that uh, Norma uh, posted, especially given that our conversation at this month's podcast was about um, suicidality. And then a blog post as well by our uh, lead editor, uh, what Big Bird can teach us about integrated care. So if you haven't checked out our blogs, uh, check those out um, on integratedcarenews.com. And of course, that's where you also access this. Uh, podcast cool yeah. Sure.
5: yeah and then uh, why don't you tell them a little bit about um, our summit that we're thinking for next spring
1: Yeah so um, we really feel like uh, it's important to um, move the world of policy forward and um, we're we're still kind of new at that. Uh, As an organization, we are an up and coming organization, even though we've been around for 20 plus years. um, We really haven't done a whole lot in the realm of policy. And so uh, this event will be an event that's focused not on people who already know what policy is um, or people who are already involved with policy, but it's really the, the, the folks that wish they could know better how to promote change beyond their clinics. So a lot of us are involved in making change happen within our clinics, but there's lots of policies and sort of rules, whether they're rules related to how our payers treat us, um, or rules related to how maybe the Department of Health and Human Services in our state treats us, or rules even on the federal level. Um, It's a lot of these rules, and a lot of us don't feel empowered to make change happen. So we're really putting together an event around policy so that we become better influencers in our environments. And so it's really geared towards not the professional policy person, but the average clinician who just wants to be better at creating change in their environment. So uh, we don't have an exact date yet, but that's what we're working on, working on what kind of event we can put together that would support the healthcare professionals and others that are part of CFHA's member community to be better influencers in their world. So keep an eye out for that. Um, If you haven't signed up for our newsletters, if you're not a member, um, you can sign up for our newsletters for free. If you go to our integrated care news site, you'll get a pop-up that asks you to, if you want to sign up for our So that's the easiest way to, to sign up for that. So again, Part of what we're working on, we're really excited about it. Sometime we're thinking sometime in the spring of 2021, and it will be a virtual event, of course.
5: That's pretty cool. I think it's going to be very helpful because a lot of people feel that way. I am one of those. I will actually want to learn a little bit more about policy and how to impact. Uh, and then another thing that I, it came up uh, that it has been actually a request in past years, but it's being a little bit difficulty to kind of gonna kind of roll the ball and we're gonna make another effort to see if we can do that. It's our director groups. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about Naftali, what that's that's behind that group?
1: Yeah. So, you know, as you know, Marta, uh, we have a lot of folks in our community that are tasked with leading integrated care programs, right? They're, so there may be a director of integrated care, a director of behavioral health. Um, and, Uh, There's just a lot of challenges that come with being a director. Some of them are personal challenges. You know, it can be a little bit lonely sometimes being a director in these positions, especially in institutions that don't have um, a great organizational hierarchy to support their directors, particularly if it's a medical institution and they don't really know how to support behavioral health. Um, And so, uh, you know, we want to support those folks. And one of the ways we want to support them is by organizing these peer communities and so um, we're gonna be putting out some a survey to kind of ask our membership around what their needs are related to their personal and professional needs. And then hopefully organize these folks into groups. Um, we're, we're not sure whether it'll be small groups, or large groups, it depends a little bit about what, what people tell us they need. And uh, their people are gonna be able to find that support that they need. Um, technical support, of course, you know, answers to thing questions and advice on how to kind of get things done in organizations. Um, And then also hopefully personal and professional support that our directors feel supported, feel like they have a peer network. And um, we feel like this also will help continue to spread norms across the country around how directors ought to be treated within their organizations. So uh, yeah, so keep an eye out for those uh, directors groups as well.
5: A lot of uh, cool stuff. So make sure to... um check our emails that we send to you or the the news, um, a lot of coming up.
1: Yeah, just as a reminder to stay in touch with us. There's lots of ways we make it easy for people to stay in touch. Um, Our newsletter, as I said before, if you just sign up for our newsletter on integratedcarenews.com, that's one way to stay in touch with what's going on. Becoming a member, of course, is the best way to stay in touch because you're going to know exactly what's going on. So you can just go to our main website, cfha.net and join to become a member uh there and then of course we have our social media feeds so we're active on twitter Uh, we're active on facebook uh, as well so those are all ways to make sure to to stay in touch and of course if you subscribe to this podcast and listen to inside cfha that'll be yet another way for you to figure out what's going on behind the scenes
5: great well that's all for us from today right
1: that's right we hope all of you who are listening, you may be listening at some point, uh, typically over the end of the year. We hope that the end of the year is a blessed, peaceful, and safe uh, end to your year. Thanks for listening. Bye, everyone. Yeah, so uh, that's what's going on with the inner workings of, of uh, what we do as staff here at CFHA and how we're trying to provide for a platform for our members to get their work done and to um, have all the resources they need to get it done. So I hope you find it interesting for those of you who are curious about how the, uh, how the sausage gets made. So, so to speak.
0: Thank you for giving us that look behind the scenes. Uh, I appreciate that and I'll continue to appreciate and recommend CFHA. I was in a completely unrelated Facebook group that I'm in for a podcast that I listened to. And someone said, Hey, I just got hired. I'm a counselor and I got hired to do this work in a hospital. And has anyone ever worked in a hospital? That's not inpatient mental health. And like, where do I even start? So I said, oh let's talk. We need to talk. We're actually having a Zoom call this afternoon. Um, but the first thing I said was get yourself to CFHA, find the people and the resources that are going to connect and support you because, um, you know, it's just such a wonderful starting point. And, I, and I, I could hear in her voice already that idea of, wait, there's a whole community of people doing this thing, that it feels like I just discovered and my health system just discovered. And so i um, just excited about that. Anyway, I'm going to move us now to our uh, topic for this week. You know, we have a little bit of news and notes. We haven't done that in a while, but some studies were recently released looking at mental health and COVID and doing some um, reflection on what can we figure out about what's going on um, in our community and you know, really take a biopsychosocial look at COVID-19 like we are want to do about all kinds of health problems. And two particular studies were highlighted on our CFHA listserv that I wanted to kind of draw our attention to and help us as we're launching into our conversation. And we'll put the links to both of these in the show notes for people that want to go to the data and check it out further specifically. Lisa Zach Hunter shared a study from the Lancet that was published just earlier in November um, about COVID-19 and mental health. And a couple of findings from that study that we wanted to highlight is that adults have approximately doubled risk of being newly diagnosed with a psychiatric disorder after COVID-19 disorder than they would have um, other patients that hadn't had COVID-19 and the estimated probability of having been diagnosed with any psychiatric illness in the two weeks to three months after COVID-19 diagnosis was 18%. So we're seeing about one in five of our patients who have, um, you know, walked through that COVID-19 experience having a subsequent mental health diagnosis. And then earlier, um, Eric Osland had shared on the list serve a CDC study that came out in August where they were looking at, um, they surveyed over 5,000 adults in the United States towards the end of June. And one of the things that they looked at was who was considering um, suicide, who, who, who would endorse that they had seriously considered suicide in the past month. So between like the end of May and the end of June. And they found that 10% of the adults that they surveyed. And when you drilled that down further, it was 25% of people in the 18 to 24 year old age group. So young adults, 18.6% of Hispanic respondents, 15% of non-Hispanic black respondents, 21% of essential workers. And, you know, I think we've been cautious on our podcast and in our conversations to not break apart what's the pandemic from the racial injustice and the political unrest and everything else that's happening in our country right now. But I think those of us working with integrated care, you know, it doesn't matter if it's because of COVID-19 or if it's because of racial injustice or what the stressors are in the person's life, but we are seeing this huge rise in stressors among our patients and especially in mental health stressors. And, um, you know, Bridget made a comment in the chat that it's silly how we call it psychiatric illness because really we know they're all connected and interrelated but there's a rise and there are more patients considering suicidality and so that dovetailed really nicely with a question a listener sent in and asked us to talk about suicidal ideation and integrated care so thank you Q Ahmed for that question Um, and so I would just bring that to our group to kind of open up and talk about you know what we've seen with suicidal ideation and this period of time and the work that we're doing.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's a great thanks to the listener uh, for bringing it up. Um, such a salient topic. It's, it's been top of the mind for a lot of us working in primary care uh, during this time. And I, I, think, I think I have two reactions. So one reaction to the studies are um, kind of like, duh, right? I mean, it's like, uh, yes, we're going through a historically uh, stressful time. And and the other one is I'm very appreciative of the researchers to highlight this issue. I think it's important to highlight. It's important to bring it to the fore. But kind of like, you know, Bridget's reaction in the chat here, I, I do also don't like the way in which it's talked about, because in a way, I kind of feel like it further stigmatizes the whole notion of suicidal ideation right? By making it, oh, this national crisis. Yes, it's something we need to pay attention to and be mindful of. However, we can talk about it differently than this sort of odd reaction that people are having to economic decay, racial and political strife, and a global pandemic. Actually, suicidal ideation is often a very... Um, you could even say in some, some ways an adaptive response cognitively to circumstances that make a person feel very, very helpless. Now, of course, it's what you do with that response, right, that, that we key in on when we talk with patients about it. But I never like react in horror and shock when a patient tells me, what, you've been thinking about suicide? Let's talk about that. You know? Um, that's part of, I think, the dynamic that we've sort of created when we sort of sensationalize um, these things, instead of actually treating them as, uh, as an expression of a reaction to internal and external events that are happening, that serve as signals for us to, to reach out, to um, kind of Change things in our lives to change our responses to to system, systematic things that society we as a society need to address, right? So I think I think that's my reaction to the papers. It's a mixed reaction of like, boy, I'm really glad that people are talking about this. Oh, I'm not so glad that they're talking about it this way.
3: Right, and Neftali, I think you hit the nail on the head with this. We get asked all the time. My partner and I get asked all the time. Well, you do the contextual interview for whatever presenting problem. Well, what do you do with suicidal ideation? It's like all the more reason to do a contextual interview. If you cannot figure by the end of the visit, if it doesn't make sense to you why that thought would show up in somebody's mind, you don't have enough information. So if somebody expresses suicidal ideation and all of a sudden you go directly into a safety planning mode, you treat them very delicately like, oh my God, there's something like exactly like Neftali described, what kind of messaging is that to the patient? And you don't even get to know them because it, it basically stops there. But if you say, okay, thanks for sharing that. I definitely want to come back to it. Continue with your contextual interview. By the end of it, you will know, well, if you did a good job, you will know, wow. Yeah, that makes sense. If I were in that person's shoes, my brain might be creating the messages of suicidal ideation as as well and so for listeners out there who are maybe thinking well suicidal ideation that's too much i'm a brief therapist uh probably purge that from your mind as soon as possible <laughs> because this is absolutely appropriate it comes up there's no way it's not going to don't panic trust your skill set get to know the patient and you'll be set in a very good direction
2: yeah I think uh, part of, uh, to both of your uh, thread lines and your points is often we are set up to respond to suicidal ideations or suicidal behavior as if it's a, uh, we we never end up treating suicidality per se, right? We end up treating all, or we end up doing things in order to, uh, for the lack of a better word, CYA, right? And that's really what the systems are geared to do instead of um, looking at those potentially uh, and I think for patients too, it's scary because they're not supposed to have these thoughts, right? These thoughts are not, uh, something that is normal, right? And so, and of course, the the cultural narratives and social messaging doesn't help it either, right? Cause you're not supposed to have these thoughts. And if you have these thoughts then there's something horribly wrong with you, I think the most, um, comforting moments in a consult is when, as I hear and listen, and then, you know, sort of Reflect back to the patient to say, you know, just knowing what's been happening to you for the past three to six months, if you were reacting in any different way other than what you're feeling now, I would be very concerned. Because right now, your body is biologically and psychologically responding to this in a very appropriate way. You recognize there's distress, you recognize that you're overburdened, you recognize you don't have a lot of help. And when you have all of those, uh, all of that building up in your pressure cooker, it makes sense that this is the steam that's coming out, right? Like it's uh, helping them normalize uh, and just uh, connect with the pain that they're struggling with rather than saying, oh my God, I can't believe you told me that. And I need to now uh, get the cops here or whatever it may be, right? Um, And we've had. The, the hospital here has this knee-jerk reaction to positive on question nine in PHQ-9. And um, you know we had to really uh, wrestle with them to really say you're over pathologizing uh, somebody's trust when they are trusting us enough to say, I'm really thinking about ending my life. And our response to it is, we need to send you to inpatient um, immediately for an evaluation.
1: Yeah, and there's, you know, there's nuance to this, obviously, right? So one of the things that you do as a professional in these um, encounters is you try to develop that context around what the suicidal ideation means, right? Because that's the key piece. And for different people, it's going to mean differently. Most of our conversation here. So far as around like, you know, folks struggling with the pandemic, struggling with what's going on with 2020, but there are certainly are folks who struggle with suicidal ideation as a sort of a chronic aspect of their functioning. Could be the aspect of their personality functioning, for example, could be related to trauma in their uh, background and, and, and where suicidal ideation serves sort of a, a, a functional escapist type response for them, right? So we take all of that into account as we kind of work with an individual but in, in any case, the you know, in my clinical experience, most of the work that I've done in visits with folks is not directly on the suicidal ideation itself. I've spent very little time um, typically working on changing suicidal thoughts or mitigating means to suicide. Although at times, again, some of that may be necessary, get the gun out of your house, talk to a friend about taking your weapons for, you know, the next couple of weeks, you know, Um, tell, tell the people in your household about um, your plans so that they can help you, you know, when you have those uh, temptations come to mind. But like, I'm telling you that that's like less than 5% of the kind of things that I end up working with folks on because, in the end, all that is, is um, it's sort of, you know, focusing on the symptom of the issue and not really exposing what the patient actually came in for. Uh, right. Because it's rare that someone comes in actually for suicidal ideation as they're presenting complaint, right? Or or
0: Unless there's a family member bringing them in because of it.
1: Yes. That's the other situation where that happens, right? But, but most often they're there because they they want something to get better, right? Something's not right. Sometimes they can't even identify what that is necessarily, but they want something to get better. And part of my job is to help them figure out what, where this is coming from, what's the context of this situation. And then how do you, how do you move forward? How do you instill some of that hope that there's even a way, a pathway to move forward? I don't want to make it seem like, you know, oh, this is all cut and dry and everybody's exactly the same. We just kind of no, there's nuance to it. And it's just its just so rare to me that what I get got taught in grad school to do with the CYA stuff, that is not what I'm doing typically in practice, especially in a community setting like primary care.
0: I think it, it's been alarming to new clinicians that are coming to primary care that I've worked with about how often we're finding suicidal thought or discussing suicidal thought with patients. And one of the things I hope is happening through this conversation is sort of parallel to, we want to normalize this for our patients. We also want to normalize this for our clinicians some, because I, one of the things I reassure my interns about is in- for one thing, we're going to see more suicidal ideation in primary care than they do in traditional mental health, just because of patient volume, it's a numbers. If we're screening consistently and you're seeing, you have a provider that's seeing, you know, 30 patients in a day, and then you have four providers in your clinic, that's 120 patients coming through your doors every day of your primary care clinic. Whereas it's much less frequent, less numbers of patients that are coming to a mental health a community mental health agency, for example. And so some of it is we're just seeing it more often because we're asking, because we're working with a much larger volume of patients.
1: Yeah. And that's a great point, Grace. I just wanted to say that it brought to mind, as you talked about the residents, how, how different the responses are between uh, physicians and then uh, BHCs and clinic to suicidal ideation. So as BHCs, we often end up like helping the system calm down in their response and reaction to this, um, especially newer physicians who are not used to working in an integrated team environment and not used to working these situations. A lot of times they get a patient with, uh, who presents with suicidal ideation and then uh, there's a sort of overreaction to that and this kind of panic around it. And then we're able to go into the room, work with the patient, contextualize it, come back out and really let the physician know, hey, Actually, um, I think there's a way forward here. We've, we, we can ascertain relative safety here. And uh, this is actually a natural phenomenon. It makes a lot of sense that this person is going through this situation, here's Y, X, Y, and Z. And that's, that's one of the team-based effects that's really helpful because then the system, down from the medical assistants to the nurses, to the physicians, all begin to respond to patients very differently when they're in crisis. And, and respond in a much more therapeutic fashion as a team. That's the real power of it. It's not just me going and working with the patient, but the entire team just has this approach of, you know what, any patient, any phenomenon that you bring to us in primary care, we're gonna, we're gonna love you, we're gonna care for you, we're not gonna overreact to it, we're gonna help you understand it, and um, we're gonna help you f- figure out a way forward with it. And, that, and some of my most satisfying interactions have, have occurred in that context, actually.
2: I was gonna ask, I think uh, part of the perspective that we're taking also comes from being able to fully contextualize the experience of the patient, right? Bridget, I, was, I know you're putting a lot of things on the chat, so I was wondering if you can elaborate on some of the things that you're putting. That would be very helpful for people to sort of get as, it's almost like, can, can we expand their viewfinder so that it becomes a lot more clear? I think you talked a lot about function of every behavior and the whole idea that um, it makes sense and then even the the concept of problem-solving mind and how that exacerbates those uh, symptoms.
3: Yeah, I think that we all have the CYA so ingrained. Even my brain is ruminating like, well, if there was a listener who heard what I said in the beginning where I said (laughs) to listen and contextualize, you know, as we keep saying, contextualize the problem, that somehow, like Neftali was saying, that that means that we're gonna not address it if you get to the end. Of course not, like, I'm just saying don't stop in the beginning and if the first or second or fourth thing a person says and then abandon the contextual interview because, yeah, because you're gonna find out what's actually going on with the person. So as you're going through that, you're, you're gonna put yourself completely in their shoes. As you ask about their living situation and their relationships and their families and taking into account the macro systems and uh, the other, sorry, I'm not a family systems person completely, but I love family systems. All the different systems that are going on and you're conceptualizing what must it be like to wake up in this person's skin, both physically in their external world, internally in their minds. If you can't as a clinician picture why those thoughts would show up, that might be you know, suicidal uh, ideation, then I don't think you have enough information just flat out. So you're going to keep asking those questions. And if you do a contextual interview, the way that, you know, that makes sense with that living situation, relationship, family, friends, work, it's going to, the love work play, essentially, it's going to come out. It never, in the seven years and the over 2000 patients I've worked with, I've never had that not come out in the seven years of working in primary care. I've called the police less than 10 times. Uh, or the um, where we have to have somebody be taken to the hospital less than 10 times. And that's, like I said, well over, probably close to 2,500 patients. I haven't run my numbers recently. So a uh, long story short, uh, using the acceptance and commitment therapy background is extremely helpful. We, you start understanding that our thoughts have a mind of their own uh, oftentimes. And a lot of times is that our brain goes into problem-solving mode. And so a problem-solving possibility as Neftali alluded to earlier is if it's completely hopeless situation, your mind might give you as one option to not live anymore. That might that would take the pain away. And that's true. It would oftentimes take the pain away. Now I'm not advocating for it, but you could see why that would show up. And when I talk to patients like this, their mind like the way they look, they're like, so you're saying that this is normal. You're saying that just because I have the thought, I don't have to do it. And they'll tell you if they want to or not most of the time. So I've had patients that are like, I am not gonna do this. I'm just so upset that my mind keeps telling me it. And so we're able to do that acceptance piece, that willingness piece that your mind's just doing what minds do, it's in the problem solving mode. And we write it all down and we say, this is just what your mind is doing. It's giving a menu of options. That's one option. You're telling me you're not gonna take that option. And then all of a sudden, just like act would predict, the amount of time and energy that their brain is going to that thought reduces because we have now made it that this is not something we're gonna act on and that this is just a thought. Now, of course, CYA, everybody, this is not every case. You have to have that nuance. (laughs) So um, I hope that makes some level of sense, uh, Deepu, from from what you're hoping I'd expand upon.
2: No, and I think um, you definitely have to look for the context. Should help you think about even the CY aspects, right? Like who who do they have in their immediate uh, environment? Who do they have as protective factors? Who do they? Uh, what do they want to live for? What are the things that you're looking for? I've not had a uh, there are probably about four patients that I can think of that um, as we talked um, and the patient sort of. Um, let's, you know, I listened to the patient, walk them through the different uh, options. And they said, I really want to go in. Like, I really want to be in the hospital. I said, okay. And so we have a hospital uh, right across our clinic. Uh, It's a behavioral health hospital. So we we literally walk them over and we admit them with the rest of the staff. And I do courtesy checks until they're discharged for us, which is very convenient because it's like right next door. But all of my other patients, I've not had a single patient where I couldn't work with them to call a family member or a dear friend in the consult itself before they leave the, the office. And I ask for permission. Uh, we dial them together. And I introduce myself. And I say, I'm here with your loved one. And we want to update you on some of the things that we've been uh, discussing. And, uh, you know, and then sort of go from there. And we're actually reaching out to you to see if you can be an ally for the next two to four weeks. Uh, Just keeping uh, checks on your friend or your son or your loved one and see if he can be part of our team. So we extend that uh, care support with the other person, right? So now we have our team and then the patient and then another resource.
1: That's fantastic, Deepu. That's just such great care. And I'm guessing you also, when you do that, that you're not calling up the friend and saying, hey, your friend is suicidal, therefore we're admitting them to the hospital, right? I mean, you're even in that conversation, I'm guessing you're presenting this as really just an opportunity to support their friend who's going through a hard time, right? And, that, and that's the difference, right? So we're not then sort of, in a sense, we're not admitting the person for suicidal ideation. We're, we're hoping to conceptualize that admission as an admission to, you know, um, problem solve X, to right. improve B, you know, to you know, it's, it's actually not the suicidal ideation. That's what I, that's what I actually often when I do, when I train students, I tell them the solution to suicidal ideation is not an inpatient admission. Like that's not a solution, right? There has to be something that happens in the process of someone being cared for that meets their fundamental need. Right. So so then that's what informs my decision making when I think about an inpatient admission, because I think what's going to happen there that would actually solve this particular person's issue or help them get on the way towards doing that. And there's so very there's a narrow window of things that inpatient admissions actually will solve right. uh, for folks. And so that really helps me helps inform whether it's going to be the best actu- best actual step for an individual to take.
2: That's right, and yeah, it's the the purpose of the admission has nothing to do with the presence of suicidal behavior or thoughts. It's really to help them reconnect and resolve other things, right? Because this thing can come back again, right? And to to Bridget's point, I know you're you're probably familiar with uh, uh, Dr. Strassel's studies that he did on suicide. So I just pulled up a couple of things from. Uh, the things that they make in the beginning of their acceptance and commitment therapy book. So there's technically, this is in 2010, right? There's 11.5 per 10,000 that annually um, attempt or commit suicide. I think it's attempt suicide. And then 42,773. This is in 2016 every year. And part of what they're saying is uh, is the lifetime incidence is 10% will make an attempt 20% will struggle with suicidal ideation and develop a plan and look at means and 20% will struggle with suicidal ideation without a plan. All of that to say roughly half of the total population will experience moderate to severe levels of suicidality in their lives. And in the context of these thoughts that uh, happen for people, it's usually connected to things like immense burdens of living. Uh, future where the burdens uh, are can't be lifted in any other way. And then the, the stated purpose um, of uh, their intent or their behavior has a lot to do with the heaviness of the thought and the emotion, not, uh, not necessarily anything else. And then it's really different states of mind where they feel guilty, anxious, loneliness, and all of that stuff, right? So there is a variety of purposes the suicidal behavior is actually Uh, sort of other things are tucked underneath this behavior of suicidal uh, ideation. And so the main point that ACT makes is if the most unhealthy form of activity that exists is present to some degree in the lives of most humans, but not among other sentient beings, there is something unique about human beings that makes it so. And that unique factor is just our capacity to think and problem solve. And when problem solving is misapplied, these thoughts are natural uh, to sort of uh, come out, right? There is a great new book by uh, Dr. Vivek Murthy. He is the uh, former Surgeon General uh, of the US under the Obama administration. And I think he is now part of the COVID-19 Task Force. And uh, he was, uh, uh, they call him as the nerdy guy 10 years ago, who started talking about loneliness. And he has a book out called Together, The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World. And he just released it earlier this year. And I know he's going to have a big focus on mental health as he addresses the COVID-19 response from a public health point of view and even from a policy point of view. So that's a great book. And uh, I haven't read the book, but I've heard all his interviews on different platforms. Uh, And he would be a great uh, person to have on the podcast someday.
0: Yeah, well, and we'll definitely add that to the show notes for our listeners who want to check it out more. Um, I just want to reiterate something that you said earlier, Bridget, that this is not us saying that suicidal ideation is a Important or that it's not a big deal, but that when we can look at it in the context of the patient experience and bring that context to our conversation with the patient, our conversation with the provider, with the family. That we can slow down and step back and not panic so we're still doing a thorough assessment of the suicidal ideations and the thoughts and you know the frequency and the lethality and the importance you know the the how bothersome is it to the patient all of those things that you learned in your you know traditional mental health training are come into play and are important in in an integrated care context But they're also on top of the context. And we have an opportunity to safety plan and to work within the community and within the context of a care team and a family to support patients more than just panicking. We don't want for a patient to come in and to disclose their thoughts and to look at our face and see reflected panic back at them, because then that's a barometer for how they should hold those thoughts or how they should experience them as well.
3: And and Grace, just to add on to that, if you oftentimes are able to get this context first, you can identify the assessment may or may not be necessary with regards to, so if it comes up through the contextual interview is that the person is like, look, I will never do this. This is just so frustrating that this thought keeps popping into my head. I'm so annoyed by it. I feel like like, there's something wrong with me, but I'm not going to do it. I don't even have, sometimes it answers itself. Now, Mm -hmm. So you might have to do the full thing if like the frequency and the intensity, blah, 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 and so forth that you learn, but you might not because they might tell you super, super early on in the process that this is not an option, that this is more of a frustration with a thought. So uh, I just want to clarify that because I could just see it's really hard for folks who are new to integrity care or maybe who've been in there for a while, they think that you have to do this like regimented thing all the time but if uh, you'll save time by actually getting to know the person you you will you will save the time and then having to know the person
0: and then what that does for the relationship is that the the bhc or the physician or whoever is the care provider is not just laser focused on these thoughts i've got to figure out these thoughts and figure out what's wrong and figure out you know if i have to lock you up or not but it's about understanding the patient and in the context of then this relationship that you're forming with them that is warm and is understanding and accepting. And it's a lot easier for then if you like, even if you do have to make a recommendation that, you know, I just, there's a specific purpose for this inpatient. I think that would make a you know, it be inappropriate and make a difference for you, that recommendation comes more from a place of understanding this patient and not just, you know, I hear from patients all the time who said, yeah, I said the word suicide to a provider and I got put in a inpatient mm-hmm. facility and it was awful, you know, and so then you're building this trust and collaboration with the patient as opposed to, um, you know, CYA like you guys were talking about earlier.
4: My mentor, Joe Wetchler, he always used to say anxiety up, options down. And that applies in so many situations. And I think this too, if we we do that thing, you know, where we immediately tense and panic, then the options for connection and actually helping the patients that we serve, um, they just go down.
1: Yeah. And I, actually, Christina has a great point because uh, I've had the experience with many patients where, you know, we'll be, we'll be talking through the main issues in their life. They they bring up the suicide thing. And I think they have this expectation that I'm going to then like react to, to that. And then I just say, um, okay. And then I kind of put that in the back of my head. And I go on with where I think we're going to get some good information from the patient. And then at the end, I come back around to the suicidal ideation and the patient's like surprised and be like, oh, you didn't target that first. And, and then we're actually, I'm getting better information. Yes. the, The suicidality at that point, because I didn't, as Grace said, get laser focused just on that piece. To the exclusion or or sort of out of context, really, with what's really going on with the the individual's life. So so I think I'm getting better information when I'm trying to get that that sense of, because really, I mean, when it comes down to it for suicide ideation, the main thing, the main decision thing in our heads as clinicians is, you know, does this patient need to be admitted for safety reasons, right? I mean, that's the yes, no. Anything else is just clinical decision-making about how we proceed with the care of the individual, right? So once I have that yes, no answered in the context, right, we move on and we start working on stuff. If the yes is gonna be yes, then I'm working on creating that context so that if we're gonna move that person forward to an inpatient, then then there's a context for that. There's a reason for the admission. It's not just a reflexive thing.
0: One thing I wonder if you might have any advice for our listeners about what happens if there's a disagreement among the team members that are treating this patient about what's the appropriate level of care for
3: them? Never had that happen.
2: I can think of a time um, when I was actually in North Carolina doing my training. And I remember it was this uh, uh, 17-year-old, I think it was her first visit to the clinic. And I think she had some language developmental delays and she you know she's from rural north carolina and she was there with her boyfriend's mother and you know she didn't have like appropriate language to like express everything and she um had a lot of like irritability and anger outbursts not in the visit but just in her history based on her report and her uh boyfriend's mother and so she say you know when i get angry i just want to like like chop people up kind of thing, right? Like, so I don't, she wasn't meaning like, I literally want to go and chop people up. Um, Like that's her, like how frustrated she gets or she gets into fights with her siblings and all of that. And I didn't think there was any immediate or imminent risk uh, or threat. And, um, you know, I asked the uh, boyfriend's mother as well, like, as you guys go back home, do you have any concerns for her? And this was like all in the open, right? And it's like, come out, and then the resident goes in, and then the resident hears the same thing, and he comes out, and he's really panicked. And so he said, I don't feel really comfortable about uh, sending them. I really think she needs to go to the hospital. Now, uh, the thing in North Carolina is if you, if somebody's going against her, oh, you have to have the sheriff come in and all of that. So I said, this is a 17-year-old girl. She's trusting us right now. I really think we are going to lose her if we sort of like go all out in this visit. And I said, all right, what I'll do is I'll go back in. I'll, I hear your concerns. I'll just sort of like do a reassessment and just sort of re uh, take a, like a look at their confidence and all of that. I went in by the time I c- came out, that was like this busy activity with MAs running back and forth and Uh, And they had like mobilized a crisis response by then. And I told the resident, I said, hey, like, I think they're safe to go. And he said, no, I can't do that. This is under my license. I said, okay. I said, I hear what you're saying. I said, why don't we talk to the attending? And why don't we get the attending's perspective? What I'm advocating for is this is a patient that's come to us. And I think we can do a lot of good work with her in the long run. I think her boyfriend's mother who uh, they live together, they have no concerns about any imminent or immediate risk. Um, And so the attending sort of came and interviewed and uh, the attending decided to start her on some medications and follow up with her the, I think in two days. And we did a courtesy call the next day. And that was the ultimate thing. The part that I realized was, you know, I hear Suicidal ideation or thought, and I'm thinking, okay, tell me more. Right? I'm collecting information, assessing the context. I'm not saying, oh, we need to act. I was not displaying any sense of discomfort at what I was hearing. And I think for the resident to see uh, my response, I don't think it was comforting for him. And we sort of talked about it afterwards. Um, and I said, and maybe my challenging communicating to you in that moment was I was pretty calm and sort of curious and rather than alarmed and alerted uh, to sort of like do something in response and I think that's the only one of the times where I can uh, think of a disagreement and I you know I, I said all right I hear you let's get the attending involved uh, and so that's sort of well, what happened there
1: I haven't had that come up too often, uh, maybe less than a handful of times when a physician had a a more sort of extreme reaction to a patient in crisis. But I think uh, some similarities to what Deepu did is what I would do is just uh, seek to take actions that reassure the physician. So going back into to talk with the patient and gather some more information is one action that can reassure and then the other thing I often do is often say, well, you know, if, if it would help you feel better, what, what, what if we develop a plan where we follow up by phone in the next day or two and check in with the patient just to see where they are on a day-to-day basis? Um, so that's one of the other things I'll do. And then if, if it's a newer person, like a resident or some or a physician that's newer to the area um, I often will just take a moment to, to explain what an inpatient hospitalization would actually accomplish and often how hard it is. So for example, what I would often explain is, well, what's actually going to happen when you send this person is they're not going to the inpatient ward directly. They're going to go to the emergency department. They're going to get evaluated there. In 10 years here, I've had maybe a handful of patients make it through the emergency department up into the inpatient setting because their threshold is really, really high this is not gonna meet this threshold. They're probably gonna be there for about 12 hours in the emergency room, get discharged from the emergency room, and then they're gonna be right back here tomorrow feeling worse as a result. So I'll just explain what's actually going to happen to be more reality-based. Because again, I think there's a lot of magical thinking related to what we believe is going to happen when we take the quote-unquote right steps right? We do the suicide assessment, we do the safety plan, and then magically something good is going to happen. Um, that magical thinking is what I try to th- kind of poke holes through, whether it's a resident physician or, or actually another trainee. Actually, I've had probably more issues with trainees who are, you know, kind of upset and, and not not real confident about what to do
2: I I would
0: just agree with you guys that in my experience, it's been rare for that kind of disagreement to happen. But what I'm hearing from you, not surprisingly, is that a lot of the answer through is communication and collaboration.
2: Yeah. And I I think also advocating for the patient and also advocating for what we know, right? Like this, uh, um, sending them to the hospital isn't going to solve the issue. And it'll probably... um, exacerbate the symptoms because of the uh, amount that they have to wait, and um, they're probably going to leave AMA, which has happened a lot of the times, because ER probably takes six to eight hours to respond to them, and all of that, so... Mm -hmm.
0: Well, I'm going to wrap us up because we're coming to the end of our hour and just thank you for all of your thoughts. Thank you again to our listener who sent in the question. We definitely invite you guys to send in, um, you know, topic ideas or questions that you have, and we'll put that email address in the show notes for you so you can connect with us. Um, we are for our special segments have a co-host spotlight interview, uh, where I interview Deepu. So we are going to go to that now. Hello, Deepu. Thank you for joining me for your spotlight interview. Could you tell me a little bit about how you came to be a member of CFHA and how you came to be on the podcast?
2: Oh my gosh, yes. CFHA has been such a gift for me. Um, I was initially introduced to CFHA, I think like around 2012. I sort of knew it existed. And uh, of course, when you're a student, you can't go to every conference, right? And um, I first joined CFHA to be part of the early career mentoring program. And that was a good experience um, because I wasn't even, um, like, I had not attended any conference or anything before that, but I had Alan Lorenz as my mentor. And, you know, we were able to stay in touch uh, a couple of times during that year. And then I think it was the following year, I think it was 2016, maybe, uh, or 15 when I first attended the conference. And um, I used to have a radio show when I was at Virginia Tech. So I was on, we have a student run radio station, cover like 150 miles of like Southwest Virginia where we were. And so when Neftali said something about podcasting, I said, oh man, hey, I would be really interested because I one of my favorite things to do in grad school was my radio show. And uh, and so that's sort of how I inched my way in. And uh, I think when Nathalie also took over, I had told him, you know, I'm here to support in whatever mission that you want to sort of take the the organization in and you can use whatever I can give in whatever way.
0: Awesome. I'm so glad, you know, we have known each other. I think I met you at an STFM conference was the first time, I think, that I think we, so. our paths crossed. Um, and so we've known each other for years, but I've so appreciated the chance to just know you more through the podcast and get to collaborate and work with you on this project. It's yeah.
2: Fun. As we were gearing up for this interview, what I was thinking about was uh, we had like this um, fan moment when we were at SDFM and we saw, I think, Susan McDaniel and Jerry Hepburn's thing. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and then we got a picture we went we and asked, asked for a picture
4: we did maybe I could uh find
0: it and put it in the show notes for people uh,
4: That's
2: right. I'll look for it too
0: yeah Julie Shermer kind of just took us both to breakfast and I think uh Jerry Hepworth and Susan McDaniel were sitting at the next table and we were like oh my gosh and Julie was like come on I'll introduce you <laughs> So I, I love I I love that story um because I think it's just so representative of the community that we work in it's so generous and that's kind true. and you know they say never meet your heroes but so far that's not been uh, not been a problem for me in our field our heroes have been so generous and it's been wonderful
2: that's true and i think um cfha is also where uh not only do you get to meet your heroes but your heroes are approachable they are uh, you know, more or less human, from what I can tell. <laughs>
4: <laughs> so far, that hasn't been so
2: far. <laughs> you know, um, and uh, and I think uh, even as a relatively younger sort of entry into the organization, I can see people newer who are entering who are sort of um, trailblazing on a lot of things, which is exciting to see, right? Like, and uh, so that the heroes include them too, the younger folks that are coming in and um, really doing some wonderful things. So it's good to be part of that community.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Well, I asked you to kind of just think of something that's important to you that we could talk about for a few minutes on this spotlight interview. And um, tell me a little bit about what immediately came to mind.
2: Yeah, I think I texted you that we can talk about uh, spirituality as uh, that's something that's uh, central uh, to my thinking uh, a lot nowadays uh, from a personal point of view and also a professional point of view. And then I think I talked about mindfulness and then I think um, they are both connected. And uh, one of the things that I've been really thinking about is the, the value and power of silence and what that can be for us
0: can you say more about that
2: yeah i i so I, of course we all know probably everybody knows the word mindfulness by now right like it, it's all this wonderful thing and then it's this uh, gentle act of how do you practice into it and how do you make that part of your um daily life um more or less like a routine right and i've been uh Really experimenting with that during the pandemic uh, with um, Dan Harris. He, I, I don't know if you guys know, he wrote a book called 10% Happier. And he has this little app um, called 10% Happier. His basic thing is if you, um, you know, practice mindfulness and meditation a few minutes every day, you become 10% happier, 10% nicer, and all of those things. Right. And so, um, he has these wonderful little series that he walks you through with an instructor. And then there's like five, 10 minutes of uh, mindfulness every day. And um, on top of that practice, what I've noticed for myself is that silence is really important. Like quiet is really important, which is something I hadn't really prioritized before the pandemic. Um, and uh, And then, you know, you fall off the wagon, like you can't maintain that silence. And I'm finding my rhythm back again uh, in this season, season of Advent for, um, for us. And so um, getting up in the morning and having a routine has been sort of something I'm walking back into. Uh, and it's connected to spirituality because I think uh, spirituality tends to be associated with perhaps religion, denominations, faith structures, et cetera. And I think underneath all of that, if you go past all of those gates and you keep walking, um, spirituality, if you're really delving into it, is a contemplative, silent invitation to be alone, but not really alone, right? Because in that aloneness, there's some togetherness with all the silent things in the world around us. Um, that we don't often pay attention to. So just to give you an example, is just thinking about nature. Today, um, one of the focus words that I'm following this meditation for the Advent season, the focus word is earth. And just thinking about earth. And I posted a picture of this magnolia tree flower. It's dried up and it has seeds inside it. And I was just thinking about that, flower that's dried up contains uh, immense genetic codes that can actually spring up life and beauty uh, given the right attention and, and the, the environment, right? And to not be in awe of that, uh, I think, would be missing something that Earth and nature can teach us about, wonder, awe, spirituality, um, and, and the intricacies of nature, Where I think a lot of spirituality must go to, but we often don't.
0: It's the connection with something more and something divine and something that's within everything.
2: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And from, uh, I had a chance to meet uh, actually a person through CFHA named Zach Cooper. And Zach and I've been uh, chatting, and we're thinking of doing a small. A review just to see what is this what is the state of spirituality and how it is addressed in ibh um, because i often um, ask the question of patients you know do you have a spiritual or a faith system that gives you a sense of meaning or purpose and if they say no uh usually i ask something about is there something that gives you a sense of meaning um, or like a philosophy or a phrase that you go by right because at the end of the day that is um a, a spiritual path uh, that will sort of guide people in their hardest times.
0: Yeah, I think when I've talked with earlier um or just clinicians who haven't had a lot of experience of addressing spirituality in integrated care and therapy, they get worried um about imposing values or about what if this person this is a different religion for me, or how are I, how am I going to navigate that? And my my words to all of them of advice are you know spirituality is about connecting with the core of meaning and about how we make sense of the world around us and how we plug into something greater than ourselves and I think if we use that definition um it really can open up the possibilities of what we're talking about in that domain
2: absolutely and I think um I think because there's such um a bias about what spirituality and faith ought to look like i think we are in america and there probably tends to be a over emphasis on christianity and different flavors of christianity that's out there you know and like uh, one of the challenges i had to go through even faith-wise or dealing with my christian community um in in, in india i used to intern at a place called Urban Indian Ministries when I was uh, in that master's program there. And they were a Christian organization and I ended up parting ways with them because uh, they said it was imperative that I use uh Bible and uh, a Christian point of view to help people connect with their spirituality. And I said, that's kind of unethical for me because they're coming to me in a position of vulnerability And I definitely don't want to use my faith statement at that point. But I said, you know, if they're a Hindu, if they're a Muslim, if they're a Buddhist, if they're an atheist, whatever it may be, there's something that gives them a ritualistic sense of who they are. And that's what I want to rely on to sort of talk about faith. Um, And I think even in the um, current, in the American context too, when I think about it, I think we tend to think about spirituality as like going to church, having membership in a church, right? We don't think about silence. Or um, I had a patient who is part Native American. I think he was kind of um, hesitant to answer. And then when he talked about, uh, you know, he has sage and tobacco at at home, and he uses that whenever he can, as long as it lasts. And we sort of made that part of our ritual. Um, I mean, he didn't really say anything, but I'm, I got the sense that I wonder he was kind of not okay talking about it in the beginning because he probably thought I was expecting like a Christian answer, you know, and I I definitely wasn't. Um, So I think that's where in integrated care, spirituality becomes an important part.
0: Thank you for sharing all of those thoughts, Dehu. Definitely, I think this conversation could go on. I know that we could talk for hours about this, but yes. we you know want to keep it uh, to a little bit uh, brief. So I wonder if we could close with just a moment of mindfulness that you would guide us in.
2: Sure, I'd be happy to. Wherever you are sitting or driving, walking, running, if you can feel your feet on the ground, And just take a deep breath. And breathe out. And if you're sitting, know that you're sitting. If you're standing, know that you're standing. And as the air moves back and forth, I want you to bring to your mind somebody that is deeply close to you, somebody who has been influential, somebody that has given you a lot, hold them gently. And I want to invite you to give them well wishes for today. you may repeat phrases that would be important for them but to help you along you can say may they be safe may they be happy may they be healthy may they live life with ease And may they find a moment of peace today.
0: Thank you so much, Deepu. Thank you for your work on the podcast and for your friendship.
2: Absolutely. This is great. Thanks, Great.
0: Thank you, Deepu, for talking with me this month for that. And I'm thankful that our listeners got to know you a little bit better in that way. Uh, We will close out now, as we always do, with our parting thought.
2: All right. So with suicide, there are many families and friends that experience the death of a loved one through suicide, and uh, there's a little blessing um, or centering prayer for them, and that's what I will read out today that's connected to what we've just talked about. As you huddle around the torn silence, each by this lonely deed exiled, to a solitary confinement of soul, may some small glow from what has been lost return like the kindness of candlelight as your eyes strain to sift the sudden wall of dark and no one can say why in such a forsaken secret way this death was sent for. May one of the lovely hours of memory return like a field of ease among these gravel days. May the angel of wisdom enter this ruin of absence and guide your minds to receive this bitter chalice so that you do not damage yourselves by attending only at the hungry altar of regret and anger and guilt. May you be given some inkling that there could be something else at work and that what you now seems Dark, destructive, and forlorn might be destiny that looks different from inside the eternal script. May vision be granted to you to see this with the eyes of providence. May your loss become a sanctuary where a new presence will dwell to refine and enrich the rest of your life with courage and compassion. And may your lost loved one enter into the beauty of eternal tranquility in that place where there is no more sorrow or separation or mourning or tears.
0: Thank you Deepu. Thank you everyone for joining us and we'll talk to you again next month.